0: Okay, so um, good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks for joining us uh, for Rabbi Silber's Shiran on the Nazir. Um, as per usual, uh, we'll be stopping every now and again for questions. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I've invited everyone to be panelist. That way, you can unmute to ask your questions, and um, you know if anything comes up between pauses, and you can. Um, put any questions you have into the chat and I'll make sure that they get to Rabbi Silber that can be either here on Zoom or on Facebook Live um, if that's where you're joining us and with that I'll pass it over to Rabbi Silber
1: Thank you very much okay so um, we have been looking at the Nazir from the the vantage point of the Tanakh the biblical Nazir and um, so of course the One chapter in the Torah about the Nazir, chapter six of Amidbar. And then we spent a fair amount of time on the great Nazir of the Bible, which is Shimshon. I wanted just to complete a couple of thoughts about Shimshon and to move to another person who, though not called the Nazir, uh, does seem to have some aspect of Nizirut, and that's the prophet Shmuel. We'll talk about that uh, today. In the two remaining classes, we'll uh, spend some time on two other people who would one of whom may well be a Nazir, and that's Yonadav. And the other one, of course, is Avshalom, who is not, doesn't appear to be a Nazir, but seems to have some elements of Nazirud. Just want to make a couple of, uh, of concluding points about Shimshon. The Shimshon story, of course, is in the book of Shoftim, beginning in chapter 13, and runs through chapter 16. 13, 14, 15, 16. And As we saw last week, the story actually seems to have two endings, two parallel endings, one at the end of chapter 15, one at the end of chapter 16. Uh, I want to point out, and this is actually very important for the study of Tanakh in general, when you're studying these books, that the way the book of Shoftim works, uh, it begins with a, the beginning of the book of Shoftim is continuing the book of Yoshua, the previous books, the conquest of the land, etc. And then you have the bulk of the book is a story about various judges. There are a whole bunch of judges, four of whom are prominent judges. There's um, Devorah, and then there's Adiel ben Kenaz, We can might include him as well, but there's Devorah, there's uh, Gidom, there's Yiftach, and there's Shimshon. And the point that I would begin with is that in studying the book of Shoftim, the longest and the, the last of the Shoftim is Shimshon. So with the death of Shimshon, which is recorded in chapter 16, one might say that the period of the judges has come to an end. It is true that the, um, in the beginning of the book of Shmuel, we are told that Eli, the priest are, is a judge, in a sense, the priesthood are judges. but well, that's different. There is something about there is less about an individual, charismatic person leading as opposed to the high priest. And even Shmuel, the prophet, could be seen as a shofate of, of sorts, but he's a he's a prophet. But in terms of Shoftim per se, uh, it's the Shimshon is the last of the Shoftim and that's actually a very important point. Because the book of Shoftim is about a time in history when we don't have the appropriate mechanism for leadership. There's one Shofet, there's another Shofet, and the shoftim have sort of a tribal cast to them as well. And the Book of Shofetim is preliminary to the Book of Shmuel, which is about kingship. The people want to have some kind of central government for all and even as important, a system in which power is passed on uh, to the next generation. You don't have to do a new job search every generation because it passed down in hereditary form, typically father to son, but from relative to close relative. That's how it works. So let's keep this in mind. The book, the end of Shoftim, with the death of Shimshon, one might say the experiment of the Shofet has more or less come to an end. So we we already discussed Shimshon and there's of course always more to say. I just want to uh, go back to a point I made about Shimshon Shimshon is the great Nazir. He, of course, loses his power when his hair is cut. And as we discussed, the cutting of the hair is symbolic of the fact not that he loses his power because his hair is cut. He loses his power because in some sense, he's betrayed his mission. And what the mission involves is a kind of intimacy with God, a closeness with God. He can't betray the secret. In that sense, Yosef and Shimshon have something very deep in common. What the Yosef story is about and what the Shimshon story is about is somebody that has secret knowledge and secret knowledge that uh, only he has. Yosef shares at the end of his life. he He shares his thinking at the end of his life. The two stories are not identical, obviously. But in the case of Shimshon, his mission, his intimacy with God, he works for God he has his own rule book, he has his own code. But apparently what is central to the code is not betraying God's, God's confidence and God's intimacy. And when he tells Delilah because he falls in love, which is his undoing, uh, he betrays the secret and then the cutting of the hair, he loses his strength. But at the very end of the Shimshon narrative, which is the end of chapter 16, the end of the Shimshon now, Shimshon is blinded, he's put in jail, and he's and the all the in the house of Dagon, their god, have come to see Shimshon pray before them. They mock Shimshon, With sachek is the term that's used in chapter 16. And Shimshon is helpless there, blind, and he's the mock they, the Philistines mock him, or taunt him, or make fun of him. And then with the very end of the story, we're told the very end of chapter 16, verse number 27. So there are 3,000 people on the God, on the roof. In general, in the Bible, being on the roof is dangerous. The uh, Gag is a dangerous place because, among other things, there's no place to go but up and you can fall off the roof. The Torah, in fact, in the Book of Dvarim, says when you build a house, you should put a parapet around your roof, lest somebody fall off. So the Gog, the high point, is a dangerous place to be. And here we have them on the Gog. They've all come to see the Haroim B'Shok they're watching Shimshon dance. They're watching the mocking Shimshon. And now, in verse number twenty-eight, <laughs> in verse twenty-eight, Shimshon calls out to God. He called out to God also in chapter fifteen when he, after he had slain many of the Philistines, he's very thirsty. So thirsty he thinks he will die of thirst, and he cries out to God at the end of chapter fifteen. And now in chapter 16, once again, he cries out to God. Remember me, strengthen me. This last time, this one time. So if only if if I I, I want to take revenge, he says, it's not clear what means. but he wants to take revenge for the fact that he's been blinded by the Philistines. This is the second time that Shimshon prays to God, cries out to God. And it's interesting because in the book of Judges, he's the only person that actually prays to God. No one else is praying in the book of Judges, only Shimshon. Shimshon's prayer was answered in chapter 15, and Shimshon's prayer will be answered in chapter 16. And the point over here, is that this reflects this closeness that Shimshon has to God. Shimshon is, is, Shimshon is God's creation. Shimshon is God's child in a very real sense. And so there's a closeness, there's an intimacy, and prayer will regain his strength through, through, his, through his prayer. Now we're told earlier in the chapter, by the way, that after they had captured Shimshon, uh, in back in verse number 22 of chapter 16, by with Sameach Kasher After he was captured and thrown into the jail, he was a grinder in the Beit Um His hair begins to grow again. So that's interesting. That is again, once again, the, the uh, book of Shoftim is tying in the growth of the hair with the strains. But as we see over here, it's not just that the hair is growing back, but the hair growing back means there's an opportunity for Shimshon to regain his strength. But the regaining of the strength will be through, through, through his prayer. And notice once again, that when Shimshon asks God to strengthen him and remember him, he puts it in terms of, he wants to take vengeance, he says, for the fact that he's been blinded. There is never a sense in the Shimshon story, never a direct sense, that Shimshon is fighting on behalf of B'nai Yisrael. We are told twice that he was, first of all, when his mother visits, uh, before she uh, gives birth to Shimshon, uh, before she's even pregnant, uh, the, the, the angel says to uh, his mother that your son will be a redeemer of Israel. So he is—he does bring about redemption to Israel, despite the fact that Israel has no interest in redemption. But he is a redeemer of Israel. But there's never a sense in the story that Shimshon makes reference to the fact that he's fighting for Israel. It's always personal. And even here, at the very end of his life, he says, "I want to be avenged for the loss of my vision." Now, there's something about the Philistines over here. I just wanted to make this point about the Pushdim. The argument that's been made over the last few weeks is that the plishtim are God's enemy. Um, Whether Israel likes it or not, but the plishtim are ruling over the people that God has chosen to rule over, even though they don't seem to care about that, but God cares. And the plishtim have a very particular um, modus operandi. But you see with the plishtim in the story over here, it's not just enough that they capture Shimshon; but they have to mock him and taunt him. And this is what we have in chapter 16, but we have it in two other places as well. We have it in the beginning of the next book, which is the book of Shmuel. You remember that in the book of Shmuel, they pushed him off fighting against Israel and they captured the Ark. The Israelites think that they lost the first round of the war because god was not with them which is probably true but they think if they bring the ark into battle then god will be with them either they're assuming that god will be with them because the ark automatically brings god with the ark or they're assuming something else which is if we bring the ark into battle and the philistines will see the ark and think that the god of israel is fighting on their side then God can't afford to lose. Because if God loses the battle, if Israel loses the battle, it will be perceived as if God has lost the battle. That's what they think. But it turns out in the book of Shmuel that God doesn't seem to care about that. God is willing to be for the ark to be captured. But what God is not willing for is for the ark to be mocked. They place, take the ark in the beginning of the book of Shmuel, if you remember and they bring the Ark to the house of Dagon, their God. Over here, we have the same story over here, which is they've gathered in the house of Dagon, the 3,000 of them or whatever, to Mak Shimshon. So um, that's found um, in verse number 23. So in both stories, both the mockery of Shemshon in the house of Dagon and the mockery of the Ark in the house of Dagon; those two are those two are parallel stories. In the second instance, if you remember, they woke up the next morning and Dagon is fallen down before the before the Ark, and they again falls down the next day, and they soon figure out that this Ark uh, is a dangerous thing to uh, to take lightly, and that the Ark. Uh, and we discovered the fact that the Philistines have defeated Israel and captured the Ark is not because the God of the Philistines is stronger than the God of Israel, but rather because the God of Israel doesn't care if the Ark is captured. The God of Israel doesn't want the Ark to reside amongst the Israelites in, the, in Shiloh, because Shiloh was run by the corrupt priests. Those are two parallel stories. And then we have another story, a third parallel to these two stories about the team. And that is also found in the book of Shmuel at the end of, of the first, first book of Samuel, Shmuel hour. There, that's the death of King Saul. And uh, King Saul is fighting against the Philistines who amassed this enormous army. And Sheol is afraid. And in point of fact, the Philistines are surrounding him and shooting him and they kill his children. They kill Yonatan and, and they wound Saul. And Saul uh, says to his arms bearer that he should kill him should kill Saul because, said Shaul, if the Philistines find me, they will capture me and they will humiliate me and they will mock me. And so the arms bearer refuses to do it. He doesn't want to kill the king. So Saul kills himself, then the arms bearer follows suit. And in point of fact, the Philistines take the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and they hang them on the walls of Baitshan. <laughs> so that's the way the Philistines operate. And then, of course, the people of Yavesh travel all night and they retrieve the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. They, they bury the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. So we have three cases of the Philistines where they act in similar fashion, which is not just to defeat the enemy, but to try to humiliate or mock or degrade the enemy. That's the case of Shimshon, that's the case of the Ark. That's the case of King Saul. In any event, God has little patience for the Philistines. The Israelites, on the other hand, say to Shimshon, listen, what are you fighting with the Philistines for? So meanwhile, anyway, so, so again, so Shimshon may bring relief to, the, uh, to Israel. That's never the stated, the stated purpose. It's always put in personal terms. And we're not told what God says to Shimshon, but from the continuation of the story, it's clear that God responds to Shimshon's prayers once again. This is Shimshon at Shmei Amudei at the very end of chapter sixteen. So Shimshon who reads against or <coughs> embraces perhaps by your Pope, um, He holds on to the two pillars of this house grabs these two pillars, I will die with the Philistines. He lived with the Philistines, he will die with the Philistines. So he brings down, tears down the whole uh, house of Dagon, and the people that he kills at that time are many more than he killed his entire life. And that's the last we hear of Shimshon. And then in the last verse, so after his death, his brothers, his father's household, come down, and they take his body and they bury him in the grave of his father. Here he led his who to judge, but here they translate led, which is probably better. There's no sense; he's a judge. He's not a judge in the courtroom, certainly. And he's not even living amongst Israel. I mean, he is leading Israel Shoftim in the book of Shoftim, are generally not judge, the only judge in the book of Shoftim is Devorah. All the others are charismatic leaders, military leaders, etc. So here too, we have in just a final thought that in this verse where he's buried, taken back after his death and buried in his father's tomb, buried with the family, That's another link that we have to the Yosef story, because Yosef is basically his entire life. He is separate from his brothers. He's Nazir Echav, he's separate from his brothers. When they come down to Egypt, they eat separately from the Egyptians and from the brothers. But the end of the story of Yosef, he instructs his brothers, after I die, someday take my bones back, back to the land of Israel, back to the promised land. May you bring me back. So Yosef, Yosef tells his brothers that someday we we will be reunited. Not in my lifetime. In my lifetime, I'm here in Egypt. But sometime after I die, I, I, I impose upon you an oath to take me back with you together. Here too with Shimshon, he leads a life completely separate from Israel, his entire life. But at the end of the day, his behavior does have a salutary effect upon Israel, whether they want it or not. So there he's a nausea from before his birth till his death. But after his death, he, he is reunited with his uh, with his family. Okay, before we move to the next, uh, next point, I wanted to stop here for a moment and take comments or questions about Shimshon. And then we will move to the next uh, so-called so called Nazir. though it's not clear if he's a Nazir or not, and that of course, is the Shmuel Prophet, Prophet Samuel, uh, so let me stop you for a minute. Rabbi? Comments or questions, Rabbi? This is Michael Platzer. I just wanted to know uh, a, a quick point: Why isn't the mother of Shimshon uh, mentioned? In, she has seems to have no name. We, right, do, that's true. Do uh, we know why? I mean, I don't know why. It's, it has to do with, I suppose. She's called the wife of Manoach. Maybe it's sort of ironic in a way because the angel and God only speak to her. Manoach, Mrs. Manoach was, uh, you know, um, it's not uncommon in the Bible, for the women not to be given, we not told their names. But in this particular case, I think it's ironic mm-hmm. because Mrs. Manoach sounds like she's, she's subsidiary to Manoach. But in the birth of Shimshon, she's the only actual player. She's the only one that God speaks to and speaks to twice. And the husband, who comes across as sort of a fool, yeah. is someone that the God and the angel don't even bother speaking to. So it's sort of ironic. I mean, the point that I made earlier was that the, if we th- think of it's a patriarchal society, the men sort of represent the society. So Manoah is a good representation of this particular society, which couldn't care less about the Philistines, doesn't care about their own destiny and their, and their own sense of commitment. But I don't know, maybe it's ironic in this particular case that even though she's Mrs. Manoach, but she's the main player in Manoach is irrelevant at best in the story. Uh, is there any other comment? It's, it's a good question. Yeah, any other, any other comments?
2: So um, the verb shafat is an interesting verb. It seems to me that even though it seems kind of colloquial, um, reckon is a sense that you get through the usage in many places, like Yishpot Hashem Be'ni Uve And here, Hushafat, like Israel didn't care about their autonomy, their redemption, their um, nationality. And in some sense, he brought about this reckoning. So it's, uh, it is a judging, but it's also like, uh, kind of like bringing the exterior to the interior that people needed to see where, where they needed to go as a nation. And he accomplished that.
1: It could be, I mean, it's certainly possible that, I mean, in effect, actually, maybe this is what you're suggesting as well, that in effect, his behavior is in a sense, a judgment of Israel because, I mean, a negative judgment of Israel, that the fact that God has to step in and create somebody from outside the community to, to, as it were, save Israel, is an indictment of, of Israel. And actually in thinking about this idea that God chooses the outsider to save Israel, it's a theme that actually we encounter earlier in the book of Shoftim. And I'm specifically thinking about after the great victory against the Canaanite kings, the story of Devorah and the song of Devorah, she specifically in talking about the great victory over the Canaanites, she goes out of her way to condemn some of the tribes that did not uh, help, in, did not participate in the battle, and she goes out of her way to praise some of the non-Jews. Actually, I mean, Ya'el was the central figure. She's not. She's not part of Israel, and she's Bijashim ba'ol tivorach. in in, in Devorah's critique of what happened, this was the great moment, the conquest of the land. And many of the tribes were asleep at the wheel. At the same time, uh, some of the non-Jews, she criticizes some who didn't participate, but she also praises uh, the outsider who did help. So maybe in that sense, the Shafat can be taken as to judge in the sense of making a judgment. And there is a negative judgment of Israel in the story. There's no question about that. The fact that God has to create this nazir That's, That is the critical question in the Shimshon story. Why a nazir? That's how we began. There's no other case where God shows that God creates this Nazir. And my point is, Nazir being separate, and no one is more separate from the Jewish people than Shibshah. His entire life, it's four chapters long. He's not really living amongst Israel at all. And his interaction with them is pretty negative, uh, in, in, in general, quite negative. So maybe the Shafat, a sense of reckoning or judging, he's a judge uh, by implication of he's, he's, he's judging, he's visiting punishment upon the Philistines, but he's also implicitly uh, judging Israel for their inaction, for their failure to, to fight God's, to be on God's side as it were. God is fighting the Philistines alone without Israel's assistance. Maybe that's what it is. But it's certainly the case that Shafat in the plain meaning of the book of Shoftim does not seem to mean generally speaking to judge. Could mean to reckon, could mean in some sense to lead. I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a good question the specifics of that Shafat. Um, is there anybody else? Thank you for the comment. Is there anybody else who... Uh, uh, who else I, I, uh,
2: there's an idea that that's percolating in my head off something that you said that um, it's always bothered me that she is known by, as Aishet Manoah, although she's the one who's active and I was thinking that um, since you're, you've been saying that Shimshon is the outsider and that it's the outsider who can affect change. And that so resonates with the story of Hannah that she has to be the outsider. And that's that's the next story that comes right. up. Yes, it and is. that Manoach reminds me of passive, of the passivity. And here is this person, he's the man, he's the patriarchal society that is going along humdrum and doesn't want to get involved and won't make a change. And she is the woman who is, Hashem is like, you are the the change maker here, but it's Hashem who's doing it. While in the next story, when she goes to the Mishkan, Ailey can't, it's so, the, the the wheels of change have so, or the wheels have so got stuck in, in in, you know, an atrophy that he can't even realize this woman who is about to affect change. And she has to do all the work to change it. It's like setting it up that here Hashem calls on her and the husband can't. Get, get his act together at all and in the next one the husband says to her you know aren't I good enough he doesn't re- again the husband doesn't realize it and the woman has to do it all by herself and Hashem isn't even involved he's more on the sidelines until Shmuel comes along it's like one step even more
1: removed but okay so that's is- a perfect lead into what we're going to do next we're going to right away do that story of Carla and and Shmuel that's actually the very next story and you, uh, among, among other points you made, you mentioned that the, in a certain sense, the story of Hannah is actually the next story. Now there's uh, five chapters in between, but chapters 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, these chapters are a kind of epilogue to the book of Shoftim. They're not the, the, the judges, Shimshon is the last judge and beginning in chapter 17, we have two stories, the idol of Micha, and then we have by Baggiva which is a kind of epilogue to the book. Now uh, The theme of the last two stories will be that there's no king in Israel, and then no king in Israel, there's anarchy. Right. That leads us to the book of Shmuel. But it actually took to the next story that is, could be seen as really a continuation. You're exactly on target here. It's the story of Shmuel and Hana, And that's where perfect jumping off one, because that's what I wanted to talk about next when it comes to, when it comes to Shmuel. Um, I I
2: just
1: see the women as connected, you know, like the next- For sure. I will discuss that in in, in two, three minutes. I'll get to that. Yeah, there's no question that the two stories are connected in many ways, including the women, who are quite different, obviously. Um, Is there anybody else, before we jump to Shmuel, who is seen by the Mishnah, certainly, as a Nazir? I wanted to talk about that. I'm not going to do the Mishnah now, but the Mishnah sees Shmuel as as a Nazir. In fact, in the Tractate Nazir, The last Mishnah in the tractate talks about Shmuel. Shmuel is a Nazir. Um, It's interesting that the Mishnah in tractate Nazir does mention Shimshon as a Nazir. But Shimshon is sort of, he's different. He's not a normal Nazir. He's in the Zir Shimshon. He's different. But Shmuel, the, the tractate ends with Shmuel. So let's take a look at that. This is chapter one of Shmuel. And as uh, as was mentioned just now, the um, book of Shmuel begins by telling us about a fellow named Elkanah. And he has two wives. One is named Chana and one is named Penina. Penina has children, Chana does not. Elkanah loves Chana more than Penina, the uh, childless wife. And now the story begins in verse number three of Shmuel Aleph. This fellow would go from the city, periodically, to bow down and sacrifice. In Shiloh, Shiloh was the central temple. Shiloh was the precursor to Jerusalem. shnei b'nei penchas And in Shiloh, they're the two priests, the sons of Eli, who minister unto God, priests of God. We discover in the beginning of chapter two, they are utterly and completely corrupt. Anyway, there's, this fellow goes up with his family, including his two wives, to bring sacrifices and to bow down before God. Shiloh is the central temple of Israel. And now we're told this famous story is the Torah reading, it's the half Torah of Rosh Hashanah. And on this particular day, Elkanah brings sacrifices and he gives portions, sacrificial portions, to the members of his family. He gives chana. Now here the question is what it means, uh, which probably means he gives her some extra portion. The JPS translation is strange here, but it's clear that he's favoring her. He gives her an extra portion or perhaps he gives her a portion equal to all the other portions. And it it explains why. He loves God has prevented her from having children. So maybe he has some pity on her, but he also loves her. So it's not a good situation. He has two wives, but he demonstrates favoritism to one of them, reminds us of the Joseph story. That never works out well. And of course, over here, it doesn't work out well either because the, the arrival, the other one would taunt her, would mock her, would make her life miserable. But, and then in verse number seven, He would do this all every year. Elkanah would do the same thing every year, he would go up to Shiloh, he would favor Hannah. the other would taunt her and, uh, and in verse number seven and Hannah would cry and not eat. In other words he wants to give her an extra portion to eat, he, she ends up with, 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 with less because she can't eat, she's so upset with the mockery, with the taunting of her rival that she could eat nothing. So O'Connor's idea of favoring her by giving her the extra portion, of course, does not work well for Hannah. And he seems to do the same thing every single year. So in other words, you got to wonder what he's thinking. He also makes the periodic trip to Shiloh. And we're told in the very beginning of the story that Shiloh was a place of utter corruption. I mean, the reader doesn't know it quite yet, the reader may know it. If you turn the page, you know it right away. There's something wrong with Shiloh, so wrong that God plans to destroy it. And now the husband says to her, so Hannah, who's crying, what are you crying about? What are you crying about? Am I not better than, 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 than 10 children? The answer to Hannah doesn't say anything, but her answer is no, because she wants to have a child. Anyway, now we have the famous story of Hannah, so Chana after they had eaten and drunk, Chana uh, is in Shiloh. <laughs> the high priest of Shiloh is Eli. Even though in the beginning of the chapter, it mentions his sons as running Shiloh, but Eili is the high priest. Eli is the priest, sits on a kisei, sits on like a throne, a special chair and he's sitting there but she is bitter of soul, that is, Chana is bitter of soul. She prayed to God and cried. She's crying. And in verse number 11, she takes a vow. And this is for our purposes. This is the central verse. So Chana takes a vow. She says, Hashem tzwa'ot, Lord of hosts, If you will see the the, uh, suffering of your servant, and you remember me, and you do not forget your servant, and give your servant a child, then I will give this child to you all the days of his life and no razor shall ever touch his head. That is the sum total of her prayer in chapter one. If she, well, it's one verse long. And she speaks of God, if you see your servant, Amotecha, on three, three, three times in this verse, we have the word Amotecha, your servant, female servant is an Amar. If you see your servant, if you remember your servant, you don't forget me and give me a child. And this child that you give me I will give back to you for all all of his life, his entire life, Fine. And then we have the strange ending of the verse, no razor shall ever touch his head. (coughs) The reason that the Mishnah thinks of Shmuel as a Nazir, are these five words at the end of this one verse, the verse of our prayer, He shall not cut his hair. He's he's to be handed over to God his entire life. And the question is when you read this, if he handed over to God all the days of his life and not cut his hair, it does remind us of the previous narrative in the Chomish, that is, the previous narrative about leaders, about judges, which is Shimshon. Because that's what the angel said to Mrs. Manoach um, about Shimshon. The angels meets Mrs. Manoach in the field, her husband's not there. And she says to um, let's find that verse in chapter 13. The angel says to her, b'yom al-ach, b'yom not, wait a let's just find the beginning of it. Um al-ach in chapter 13. Says you have no children, Akara. You will give you will your allotted you varietz, You will conceive and have it have 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 a child, and then Hashemri no etc. Don't drink any wine etc. Kian exactly the same words. Verse number five, no razor shall no razor shall touch his head. He will be a Nazir from, from the Wuban. He will redeem Israel from the Philistines. And later on, um, later on, the husband says, she says, this snow came to me. He's very, um, very frightening. She leaves out about redeeming Israel, but she says in verse number seven, she mentions over here specifically she doesn't mention that cutting his hair but she does mention that he's in the not drinking wine and then she says for he shall be a nazir from the womb until the day of his death moto, his entire life she adds that So we have a very interesting parallel between the two stories. Of course, in the first instance, it's the God that approaches or the angel that approaches Mrs. Manoach. But in the second instance, nobody approaches Hannah, quite the opposite. Her husband says to Hannah, what are you crying about? Forget about it. Whatever your dreams may be, forget it. Forget about the child business. I'm better than 10 children. He certainly means well, there's no question about it but she's not happy with his response. He's, he's not better for her better than 10 children. Um, and now we have the question. I wanna raise the following question, which is let's assume that Morag O Yahweh does seem to mean, does suggest a Nazir. The, the, the book of Shmuel never uses the term Nazir for Shmuel, never. But it's certainly moral, does certainly suggest that. And now that my question is, well, wow. in, in, in what sense is he a Nazir? I mean, in the case of Shimshon, we understand the whole story from beginning to end is all about roots. specifically the cutting of the hair plays the absolutely central role in the Shimshon story. That's the whole story of chapter 16, the where's your strength, where's your strength? He lies for once, twice, three times, gets closer to the father where he can't take it anymore. She's driving him crazy, he wants, she doesn't want to live anymore. Tells him the truth, they cut his hair, etc. Then the hair starts to grow back, etc. So we understand that in the case of Shimshon, who is called a Nazir, and the hair plays a central role. But what about Shmuel? On one hand, it says, though, no, razor shall not touch his head. But on the other hand, where in the story is he ever functioning as yes, a Nazir? <laughs> Doesn't seem to be a Nazir at all. Yes, Zella, what do you want to say? Um, it's only one of the
3: conditions that are met. There's no discussion about drinking wine.
1: Well, actually, there is no direct discussion about. It. There is an implication. We'll get to it in one minute. In the next story, Awe says you're drunk. He he says, no. he of l- right. He says, I don't drink wine. No, I, 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 but I agree with you, of course. Yeah. Rabbi? So, yes. Um, could,
3: could it, it's Sandra. Hi. Um, could it be uh, the separateness of Samuel? If we're looking for Indisha of Nizirut, we have the vow, it's the vow of the mother. But the vow of the mother can bind the child, as we saw in Samson. She actually becomes the Nazir before he does. really in actuality. So here we have a vow by the mother pre-birth, similar to Samson's mother, and he's the the great Nazir. And we also have the separateness, which is what you're looking for, Nazirut, by implication, since it's not mentioned explicitly, um, because uh, Samuel is is raised apart from his mother um, in a kind of monastic um, uh, upbringing and um uh, as a as a as a man with unshorn hair raised in the in in the basically the the temple or the monastery type place and he has no parents uh at least no functional parents uh except um uh you know the, the high priest so i think the separateness element is met in that way so you've got a vow you've got separateness you've got unshorn hair for for the whole of his life so that's a it's a it's not a shorter period. So I think I, I could see why the Mishnah, you know, uh, holds him as an azir.
1: No, well, I agree with you. Well, first of all, you made two good points over here. But let's get to the first point you have over here. This is actually quite interesting. And when we study the Mishnah, we'll see. You have over here a vow. What's, what's interesting is there is a vow uh, over here. The vow was not taken by, by Shmuel. The vow was taken by his mother. There's a very interesting Mishnah in Tractate Nazir, fascinating Mishnah, where the Mishnah talks about a father can take a vow for his son, not a a woman and not for a daughter, but a father can take a vow for his son to make him a Nazir. The son may have the right afterwards to reject it, but the father can do that. Haav madiret benobu Nazir, which is very interesting, fascinating, given the fact that the example of a parent taking a vow for a child is a woman taking your vow for her son. i will leave that aside. But the point is well taken. There is a vow over here. The truth of the matter is that in the case of Mrs. Shimshaw, Mrs. Manoach, there is no vow there. There is a vow here actually, and, and that's very interesting. Second of all, the idea of separateness is certainly the case. I would say more than separate from his mother, he's separate from his father because the mother does have contact with them afterwards. In chapter two, in verse 19, she brings him a cult periodically when the father would bring his sacrifices. But the idea that, Shimsh, that Shmuel is separated from, from birth and uh, or at least after he's, he's nursed, separated and sent off to live elsewhere with a different father who is Eli that's a very good point. So in that sense, it's certainly true that we have those elements. But I was thinking more in terms of his career, in terms of what Shmuel is about, uh, there's no doubt that Shmuel fundamentally, if you had to categorize Shmuel, he is a, a prophet and he's one of the great prophets too. Shmuel Hanavi, Shmuel Haroe, as he's called in the story. Um, so, yes, what, what, what Shmuel is about, I mean, he's primarily a, a prophet, but the question is to what extent you hit on two points. One is the, the vow, and the second is the separateness. So, I wanted just to try to develop this a little bit within the larger. Context of, of, of Shmuel. But it's, uh, you know,
3: we might be able maybe to say that he was a Nazir um, from birth because we learned that Hannah doesn't partake of any festive meal. And then she says, you know, that the, the no razor will come. So maybe just with, you know, the same thing, you know,
1: before. Right. In other words, the parallel would be there's certainly a parallel in the story between the on one hand and let's say Mrs. Manoah. a parallel yeah. but different, but different um, because in the case, what's interesting is just to follow up two points to Tobah. First of all, in the continuation of the story, so she's crying and her prayer is a silent prayer. Uh, her, her lips are moving, we are told, but no sound is coming out and um, and Eili, the priest, is washing her mouth. So we have in verse number 13 that Chana is moving her, her lips, but no sound can be heard. And Eili thinks she's drunk. So Awi says to her, Ad motai says to her, How long will you make a spectacle of yourself, drunken woman? Hosiri Leave here until you sober up. So he accuses of being of being of drinking. And Khan's response is, no, no. I'm a bitter person. I don't drink wine. I don't drink wine beverages. I pour my soul out before God. That's not what I take into my mouth, she says. I don't drink wine, but rather I pour out of me. I pour out of me, my, my soul pours out of me, right? So in other words, you, you're misreading me, she says. I'm, 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 I'm a pouring out my soul, right? I speak out of great anguish and great distress. But there you have, it's very interesting. There you have a reference to, to, to not drinking wine, which is what the angel said to Mrs. Manoah, your son will be in nausea, don't drink any wine. So the point is, as you say, the point is that Hannah herself in a certain sense is both the Nazir in the sense that she's completely separate. Her husband, everybody else is happy at Shilo. They're bringing the sacrifices, they're having a jolly old time there, but Hannah doesn't participate. She, she doesn't eat, she doesn't drink, and she has no interest whatsoever in what goes on at Shiloh. Um, in, the, uh, in the book on Shmuel, Machut Adam, human kingship, a book told that I think you are familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. I talk about this actually. I talk about the fact that what she's really praying for is somebody else who's going to lead the people. That's why she says, "If you give me a child, I will dedicate the child to God, who will not be part of this society, who will be an outsider. Because she, she and only she can see, when no one else can see, that this place is utterly corrupt. The others don't see it. And the reason she can see it, among other things, is because she has no stake in it. She's the outside. She sees perfectly well from a distance. She has no illusions about Shiloh. And uh, the fact is that, um, so this is actually very striking, but the difference between the two of them, between Mrs. manoah and Hannah is, that Mrs. manoah is very passive. She and her husband don't ask for a child, don't pray for a child. All the stories in Reshid about the childless couples, they try to do something about it. In the case of Chana, she does something about it, which no one else has ever done. Because all the stories in Breshit are always about the woman goes to the husband or whatever it is, or the woman in office to give a servant to the husband. But in this particular case, the husband says, forget about it. But Chana insists. this, Hannah prays, that's unique. We never had this before, where the woman is praying, though the husband says, forget it. So unlike Mrs. Manoach, there's something about Chana taking the initiative trying to change things on her own with no support whatsoever. Neither the husband who is a nice guy, but says, forget it, or the priest who misreads her and thinks she's drunk. And both of those people are not not supportive of her. Yes, when Elie finds out, Elie responds positively. Oh yes, okay, then God should grant your request. But fundamentally she's on her own. So the idea that you want to say, she herself is a kind of Nazira one might say, in the sense of being separate, I think that's a very important point. And that's certainly the case. And just to add to what Sandra said, that, to, that Shmuel is separated from the family. He's totally separated from his father, but his mother still has some connection to him. Later on, we are told in chapter two in verse 19 that she would bring the coat. coat is a symbol of leadership. So she's actually tried to train him to, be, to become a leader. She doesn't give him up right away either. She wants to We nurse him. It reminds us very much of Moshe, who was also an outsider. Moshe is the ultimate outsider. Okay. Let me just make a couple of comments points here about, uh, about the story over here.
3: Um, uh, sorry. Uh, yes. uh,
0: first, there are just a couple of things in the Q&A. Um, okay, go ahead. And I think, so one of them got answered just uh, briefly here, which was about um, whether Ailey ever um, apologizes to Hannah. which uh, yes, he does. And then um, uh, this ML in the chat was also um, noting that the 10 children that Elkanah has with Panina is also another kind of parallel to Yaakov and uh, Yosef.
1: Where do you see 10 children? Um it doesn't say how many children she has in, in yeah, the yes I'm text. not it doesn't I'm mention 10. Sure. Says she has children. Maybe there's a medrash to that effect. In the text it says she has children. She has <laughs> children, Khan does not. Um there's a verse later on. That the childless woman will have ten, will have seven children. That's later on in chapter two. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get to chapter two in a minute. Um, is, are there any other comments, Maxine? Anything else? Uh, no. Okay. All right. Let me just um, let me go back to this point about you no know, razor shall cut his that shall cut his shall, shall, a razor shall touch his head. Um, why, perhaps? It's fear. What what is the significance of that? Uh, Apart from everything that was said about the Nazar being separate. um, Because at the end of the day, when you think about Shmuel, we think about Shmuel as one of the great prophets. He's also one who prays. He's he's known for his prayer. As we say in the Psalms, we say this in Kabbalah, now, the truth of the matter is that the prophet and the Nazir do come together in a verse in the Book of Amos. Again, another Haftarah, the prophet Amos said, that I raised up your children to be prophets and your children to be Nazirim. That's found at the beginning of Amos. I raised your you young ones to be prophets and to be, and to be Nazirites. You, you, you gave the Nazirites wine to drink, and you told the prophets not to prophesy. So in that verse, uh, in that verse, which sort of compares the prophet and the, and the Nazir in the beginning of Amos, um, it's the Haftorah parshat by Yeshev in fact, which is very interesting because that's all about Joseph and the claim that we've been making is that Joseph is a kind of Nazarite. But you see from that verse, by the way, that it supports the view, say of the Ramban, that the Nazarite fundamentally something very positive because nobody would ever claim that the prophet is not positive. And Amos links those two together. I raised some of you to be prophets and some to be Nazarites, but the people told the prophet not to prophesy and the Nazarite, they gave wine to drink. Um, So there, that's an interesting verse, but the parallel, it parallels those two. And one might see that as once again, the prophet, like the Nazarite is also outside. The prophet is the outsider. The prophet has the distance, the critical distance to critique. It's a dangerous job. So the prophet and the, and the, and the Nazarite do have something in common. The greatest prophet of all is Moses, who is certainly the outsider. So that by, comes by definition. By definition, you have to step away from the people. You're critiquing them a good part of the time. Sometimes you're defending them. You're a go-between between God and, and, the, and the community. Some take God's point for the most part, some take the people's point, some take both. But that verse in Amos, the beginning of Amos, of course, is an indication that the prophet and the pre and the and the uh, and the Nazir do have something in common. But I wanted to, I may I wanted to make two suggestions about Samuel as a Nazirite which is how the Mishnah sees it. And there's no question that, that and if we add the fact that that it comes about through through a vow that the mother takes, there's certainly information on some level that Samuel is a kind of Nazarite, but where do we see this in the Samuel story? So I wanted to make two points about Samuel, the Nazarite. The first point is this, that Chana has two prayers. One is the prayer of chapter one, And um, there she says, if you give me a child, I will give the child over to God and no razor shall touch his head. That's what she says in chapter one. And she takes a vow. Okay. Then you have chapter two. Now in chapter two, she has given birth to Shmuel. And we have a 10 verse, uh, it's called a prayer. Chada prays, 10 verses in chapter two. And it's very remarkable little poem because you expect the poem to be all about the woman who has given birth oh god you responded to me now i have this child etc etc but when you read the 10 verses of chapter two there's virtually no reference whatsoever to having a child there's one half of one verse which talks about way god runs the world the child is one has given birth to seven and the one with many children is uh is 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 forlorn shiva that's verse number five of chapter two. But outside of that, the poem of Hannah seems to have absolutely nothing to do with the birth of Samuel. It's not about that at all. It's about the way God runs the world or the way God would want to run the world. When you read these 10 verses, it's pretty clear that the way God runs the world, God has the ability to, or wishes, to meet out justice to the appropriate ones, that is, the ones who necessarily who have nothing, if if if, if appropriate, will be rewarded with, with much. The ones who are very haughty and high up will be lowered down. God is Morish, makes poor; Umashir makes rich. Mashpil brings down. Rameim lifts up. raises the poor person from the from the from, from the. Uh, from the dust, <laughs> them with nobles. Then it goes on, By great the righteous ones, God will watch. The wicked ones will dwell in darkness, for not by strength shall the human being prevail. Ashem God will shatter God's enemies, God will reign against them from heaven, God will judge the corners of the world, etc. etc. That's the entire poem. It's all about the way God either is judging or wants to judge the world. Until we come to the last two lines of the song. God will give power to God's king. God will give triumph to God's anointed one. So the whole long poem, which is right in the beginning of the book of Shemua, which is all about kingship. And it's called the prayer of Chada. not a thanksgiving, but a tefillah, it's a prayer. What is she praying for? What she seems to be praying for is king, a king, kingship. The end of the book of Shoftim said there's anarchy when there's no king. There's anarchy. People do whatever they want. Chanukah's tefillah seems to be a prayer for a king, a king that will understand God's values and try to uh, implement God's values within the world. That's what the prayer seems to be about, and that's why it's an introduction to the book of Shmuel, which is all about kingship. And now the question is. What is the relationship between this long poem in the beginning of the second chapter, which is basically a prayer for kingship? Khana believes that it's possible for the king to meet out justice and to be in sync with God's values. That's what Khana believes. Well, how does this relate to what she said in chapter one that I'm going to dedicate my son to God? And then she said, um, no razor shall touch his hair. So what what does she think her her son's role is over here? Is the son's role, is he gonna be the one who in verse number 10 of chapter two, is he the king that in fact God will give strength to his king and raise up the anointed one? Or is that somebody else? What's the connection between the two? So I just wanted to make a a suggestion over here. And then we'll get to the second point. My suggestion is that Morolo Yarel, Rosho is a kind of Nazir reference. And the point I would make is that the king and the Nazarite are absolutely opposites of each other. The king is not a Nazarite and the Nazirite's not a king for a very simple reason. The king's role is to be the institutional leader of the people. The king is the ultimate establishment. And it's passed down. It's something that's passed down from generation to generation. It's a role that the king fills, which is to be the leader of the people. And the king is very much representing the people. The king leaves his own tribe, his own family. but But the people become his family. The Nazir is exactly the opposite. The Nazir is the one who breaks away from his family. The Nazir can't even go to his parents' funeral. The Nazir has no personal connections. It's only God to the, it's only God to the exclusion of any kind of personal relationship. So the two are opposite. So how can't be saying when she says no razor shall touch his head. It can't be talking about a king. The role of Samuel in this book is not gonna be that of a king, but the role of Samuel in the book of Shmuel, we discover is to be the king maker. Samuel is going to be the one who will in fact anoint because the two great kings of Samuel of the book of Samuel are anointed by Samuel. We are in Kevin, God should raise up, give triumph to the one that God has anointed. But the one who anoints them is gonna be Shmuel. So the fact that Moro, Yalel Rosho is a way of the text saying straight up, this is a book about kingship. It's not gonna be Samuel, but he will play a role his role will be the one who is anointing the kings. Now, of course, the book has many twists and turns and here's one of them. The person most opposed to kingship is nobody other than Samuel himself. He's 100% against it because he doesn't believe what his mother said in the poem. He doesn't believe that a king will be able to to implement God's values. What the king will be able to do, Samuel thinks, is implement the king's values which by necessity will not be God's values. And that's that's exactly the question in the book of Shmuel. That is the core question in say for Shmuel, what about kingship? His mother obviously believes, Hannah believes that it's possible, possible for the king to implement God's values. And she prays for a king. And she also wants her son, she's gonna hand her son over to do God's work. That's what it means. She says, I will give him to God. Not to be the king, no razor shall cut his hair. He's a Nazir, not going to be a king. Can't have a king who's a Nazir, because a Nazir has no sense of his parents or his children. He doesn't go to the funeral of his children either. A Nazir is completely apart from family. We saw that with the Joseph story. We see that with the Samson story. Completely, the two opposites. But his role is different. His role will be the king maker, and therein lies the introduction to the Book of Shmuel. So this, I think, is what's quite interesting about Chana. but she does believe that you can, in fact, find a human being who understands what God would want and implements it. This is the great question in the book of Shmuel, who's right? Is the mother right or the child right? Is the Shmuel correct or is Chana correct? Before I get to the second, and my main point I wanted to make about the no razor shall cut his hair, I'll stop for a minute and take comments or questions.
2: doesn't it say that the the melech has to be mikaravakha? Yes
1: it does it says explicitly
2: so that's that's the flip side that's that supports exactly what you're saying that the king has to be from among right. the people
1: that, the people that is what i was saying, of course right the right the king is of king is is a, of the people the and king with is the people, by right. the people and for the people the king is the ultimate insider right which is part of the problem in the book of Shmuel, the great book of Shmuel, part of the problem is this actually. Uh, this is one of the main points of my book on Shmuel, Machut Adam, which is, it's not just that there will be abuse of power. That's what Shmuel assumes. The king will take, the king will take, the king will take, etc. But there's another point to the book of Shmuel about power. And that is the people with power cannot see. They can't see appropriately. The people who see appropriately are the people who have a distance because they have no personal stake. And when you have no personal stake in something, you're able potentially to see. And that's the very first story of the book. That's the story of Hannah. Why does Hannah see? It's obvious. She was utterly corrupt. And what she's really calling for is a change. I'm gonna train my son. He's gonna make changes, which he does. But what is Hannah? The husband doesn't see it. The family doesn't see it. No one, no one seems to see it. But the answer I think is very simple because Hannah has no stake in it. She's a woman, let's start with that, and a childless woman on top of it. And one whose husband is totally doesn't get, altogether, she's a, totally alone. And she realizes you can't rely on anybody. She turns to God. So she sees perfectly well, but always she sees. And that's the thing that runs through this entire book. That's why the king needs a prophet because the king is never going to be able to see. The king will make mistakes. The only question is, can the king correct them or not? So if you don't realize what you did wrong, you can't correct him. King Saul's problem, not that he's a bad guy, is that he just doesn't understand what he did wrong. And he just doesn't get it. Now, David does get it, potentially, but when it affects himself, he can't see it. He's too close to it. That's why the prophet Nathan gives him a parable so he can see the reality from a distance and then he gets it. So David is the king because all kings will make mistakes all kings will, by definition, the power is going to create situations where you're going to make some, some bad mistakes. And the question is, can you correct them? That's what the book assumes, that's what the Chumash assumes, I think, shouldn't have too many horses, not too much money. Because those you got to take a Torah, you got to read it, and then maybe you'll be able to do it. But that's the only way. So that's what the book is about. It's not just about bad behavior. It's about not being able to see. So that's the problem. That's the threat. On the other hand, the king can do a lot of good, a good king with enormous power can do all kinds of good, has the power to implement God's will. Uh, The only question is, will the king implement God's will or not? Shmuel thinks no, it's not possible. Shmuel thinks it's, it's a mistake. Terrible mistake and Chana in the beginning of the book says, it's possible. Now the book's about what does the book of Shmuel think is the question. What does God think? We know what Shmuel thinks. What does God think? In my book, I claim that God is basically sides with Hannah. That yes, Shmuel's not wrong about the abuses and there are plenty of them. And the kings are deeply flawed, but it is possible for the human being to understand what God would want and be willing to implement it is the end of safer shmuel anyway that's another conversation okay is there anybody else before we get to? how much time do i have here
0: um we're a little bit over time right now we're over time
1: Uh, oh yes all right give me give me two more minutes then okay let me make make one point over you have to give me that five minute warning or something okay let me just let me just make one last point here before i'll pick it up next week i think that The point I wanted to push for, we'll we'll start with this next week. I'll just mention it now. That the story of Yosef, story of Shimshon, as I have suggested, is about somebody who is, let's say Shimshon. Shimshon is torn. On one end, he has his mission. On the other end, the mission requires him forfeiting any kind of real human relationship. He can't fall in love. He's not gonna, he can doesn't live among the Israelites and the Philistines, he uses them for his own purposes or for God's purposes. And then he falls in love and that's the struggle. That's the struggle. Joseph is the same way. Joseph is torn throughout the Joseph narrative. Does he reveal his identity or not? Without getting to the specifics of that, that's the story. I think in the case of Shmuel, there is that at the heart of the Shmuel story, Shmuel himself, Shmuel is torn because on one hand, God tells them what to do. God says it in two words to Shmuel. When the people ask for a king, yes, I know you're upset about it. Don't take it personally. They've been doing this to me, etc., etc., etc. And the bottom line in chapter eight, over and over again, Shema Kolam, obey the people. That's your job, says God. Obey the people. And Shmuel wants to follow God. God says, obey the people. Now, on the other hand, he's fully convinced that kinship is a terrible idea. He's, he's convinced that the better, the better path is the path of the one who is separate, whether it's the Nazarite or whether it's the prophet. That's the only real spiritual leadership you can have. And this conflict within Shmuel, this struggle inside Shmuel, is what lies at the heart of the character of Shmuel, at least as recorded in the book of Shmuel. Maybe I'll pick up with this next time. So there is a sense over here in this story, a powerful sense that Shmuel himself is a person in conflict. There's an inner turmoil within Shmuel as there is within Shimshon, as there is, as there is within Yosef. I want just to describe that a little bit more next time. So next time we'll start with Shmuel and then we'll say something about Absalom was also seen by the Mishnas in Nazir. And the last week I wanted to talk about Yonadav Ben Recha who appears in the Book of Kings and the Book of Yirmiyach. And that'll be our conclusion. <laughs> okay. Okay. If there are any questions, it's dsober at risha.org. Uh, we have in two weeks, the Rappaport Memorial Lecture with Rabbi Nathan Laufer, The Seder within the Seder should be very interesting. Yes, yes, Maxine, Maxine. you wanted to add something?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to add that you can, uh, you're invited to register for the Rapaport Family Memorial Lecture at um, rappaport.drisha.org. Um, you can also just go to the Drisha website and you should be able to find it pretty easily there. Um, And also this afternoon, of course, there's um, the uh, conversation on the Parsha um, this week. Uh, It will be hosted by uh, Rabbi Dr. John Kelson and um, Ms. Sophia Stefanski, who runs the uh, middle school girls program uh, that Drisha runs in the summer. So um, it would be wonderful to see you uh, there later today um, at the lecture on the 19th um and of course next week uh for rabbi Silver's share thank you so much thank you good afternoon
3: thank you
2: shabbat shalom